Amen. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. It's good to be with you here today. I'm excited about what uh, the Lord is going to do. And uh, I would echo what uh, Pastor said there. And if you can at all be involved in the outreach effort this week, uh, it would mean a huge amount to me and the people on the other side of the fence that will be the recipient of outreach. And uh, so I, I totally understand we all get busy and you can't be at everything. I've been the first to say I can't be at everything. Um, but I hope you can be at something. Somebody say something. 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 Amen. If you stand together with me tonight, Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in every heart and life. And I pray right now that, God, you would open our minds, our spirits. And I pray that you would inspire, teach us, challenge us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said amen. Amen. Can we throw Acts 1-8 up onto the screen there if you've got it? Uh, Acts 1-8, and I'll turn to it in mine here too. Acts 1-8 says, uh, says this, You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And somebody say, I shall be. You shall be. Witnesses. And it doesn't say when you get the Holy Ghost, you might be, you could be, you should be. You shall be. God understands that if you're a recipient of Him, you're immediately going to become a spreader of Him. Amen. Witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth. Amen. Would you put your Bibles down and give somebody a high five you're sitting by and say, I'm glad you're in church tonight. Amen, amen, amen. Well, you may be seated today, and uh, I give tremendous honor again. Uh, to all of you for being here. It's a privilege to be with you again. Of course, Bishop Powell and your pastoral uh, team, your ministry team, love you all. And great to see you again. And I'm excited for what the Lord has this week. Amen. Tonight I want to do something uh, along the lines more of teaching. And I want to talk to you about the subject of where hell, heaven, and the host agree. Where hell, heaven, and the host agree. Now, there's a really interesting literary progression in the book of Luke. And this is a strategy that can be used by authors when they're trying to get you to buy in to a perspective that you might have normally missed. I don't know those of you that maybe, you know, I, I spent most of my life not, not in church. And so when I wasn't in church, man, I passed my time doing this, that, and the other thing, going to the movies and whatever and I always found like it was very strange back in those days when I would go to the movies and sit there how if you told me the narrative through a different lens, all of a sudden I was siding with a party I wouldn't normally side with. What I mean is if the movie was about a bank robber and you see it through their eyes, man, you're rooting against the police officers for the bank robber by the end of the thing. Very weird deal happens when you see the story through the lens of a party that you don't normally see it, right? Well, in the book of Luke, if you have not caught this, there is a progression within but a couple of chapters where the author of the book of Luke is writing the same story, in a sense, over and over again, but he's writing it through the lens of a different perspective. So watch this. Luke is going to tell you about the host. He's going to tell you about heaven, and he's going to tell you about hell in rapid succession. Luke wants you to side with all three of those parties. 
Say what? Say yes. Luke wants you to side with the host. He wants you to side with heaven. And he wants you to even side with hell. Watch this. Luke 14, starting in verse 16. Everybody say the host. He tells us a story from the perspective of the host. In Luke 14 and verse 16, Jesus is speaking and he says this, he says, A certain man is making a great supper and inviting many. And he sent his servants out at supper time to say to them that are bidden or invited, Come, for all things are now ready. And those of you that have uh, been around and heard this a few times, you know we're talking about a parable here on evangelism. And so he sends out the church and they go out telling everybody, Come, for everything is ready. Now when they went out and they began to invite people to church The first response, and some of you have had this before Is they all, somebody say all All with one consent began to make excuse Hey, let me just stop and say this Man, I really don't like excuses when it comes to going to church Hey, you can have excuses for the dishes Excuses for the vacuuming Excuses for the laundry But don't make an excuse for this There is nothing in all the world like God's church There's nothing like a move of the Holy Ghost Nothing like healing Nothing like deliverance. Nothing like baptism. Come on, I wouldn't trade this for the world. Says they all began to make excuse. And these are the type of excuses that they offered back. One said, I bought a piece of ground. I need to go see it. Somebody say, I'm busy. I pray he have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I don't know if a yoke is one or 20. I don't know what that means. And I need to go pray them. I pray they have me excused. Somebody say, I have work. I pray they have me excused. Another said, I married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, I don't know the backstory on her, <laughs> but evidently, you can't, she just ain't ready to come out in public yet. <laughs> so it's a family matter, but people will tell you between their busyness, between their work, between their family, wedding, engagement party, birthday, anniversary, whatever, they just cannot be in church. Well, what would be the perspective of the whole? This is how Luke writes it. Not that you understand the perspective of the servant. Not that you understand the perspective of those that have been invited. But that you would understand the perspective of the host. God. The one preparing the feast. The one making the offering for others to come. How does he feel? That's who the story is going to zoom in on now. Look at this. Verse 21. So the servant comes and he shows the Lord these things. Then the master of the house. This is the only time it's going to detail an emotion. It didn't give us the emotion of the people that said no. It didn't give us the emotion of the people doing the inviting. It gives us the emotion of the host because it wants you to know the heart of the host. And master of the house, the Bible says, being 
angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. The Word of God wants you to know that God is not happy with an empty house. He doesn't care what they look like or smell like, if they're poor or rich, white or black, English or Spanish, but He wants the house to be filled. You would think that the host would give him a pat on the back. Thank you for going out and trying. But he didn't. The host was angry. Man, we, we think the perspective of God is like, well, Jesus, man, last at, at Easter, I really tried. At Easter, I went and I passed out, you know, 200 flyers for Easter. The host isn't, isn't satisfied that an activity took place if it wasn't fruitful. The host measures success by fruit. And when he looks into the dining room and he sees all of the empty chairs, there is something inside of the host that cannot be satisfied. Hear me, my friend. I'm telling you that I think God is happy about how we have church and that we have church, but it's never going to be a success in the eyes of our host except the house is filled until it's filled from the front to the back from the left to the right God is after souls it's not just about good church that is to say not just about a good meal just about a good dessert just about a good come on right when we come together it's not just a good song and a good message and a good clap and then back home God God wants to reach somebody. So Luke wants you to know this is his heart. This is the heart of the host. So he says, I want you to go back out into the streets of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind. The servant says, Lord, it's done as you have commanded. So he goes out again, does it? This time he reaches everybody, poor, maimed, halt, blind. Does it and says, yet there is room. Now, if Luke really wants you to catch the heart of the host, he's going to double down on this one last time. Look at verse 23. And the Lord said unto the servant, So he servant went out once, and the first, the first thing that he said is, Come, for everything's ready. They made excuses. He said, No, 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 you got to go further. So he goes out, and now he goes to the poor, the maimed, the halt, the blind. Comes back. Man, the servant didn't go out once. He went out twice. So you would think, again... That they would get a pat on the back, an accolade for some degree of effort expended. Yet in verse 23, the Lord said unto the servant, Now the third time, go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Luke not only told us once, but three different times, God would tell us to go, go, go. I want you to catch that. The heart of the host is that the house is filled. I think the will of God for the church of Omaha is that the house is filled. I think it's the will of God that it's filled with people that look like us and the ones that don't. I think it's the will of God that people are in here that have a background like us and they don't. I think it's the will of God from every age, every walk of life, every background, every color, every persuasion. Oh, let the house be filled. 
the perspective of the host. And when you see it through the eyes of the host, you understand. It's like, it's like throwing a birthday party. You, you don't ever want to have a birthday party by yourself. And the host has went through all of this preparation for the kingdom. And all he wants is his children at that table. When you see it through the eyes of the host, you understand there is no substitute for souls. No matter how good the meal is, it's a meal that wasn't meant to be eaten alone. Amen? All right, so let's go into the view of heaven, the perspective of heaven. Again, Luke is doing something at a literary basis here. We had started in Luke 14. We read 16 to 23. Now we're immediately following in Luke 15, verse 4. And this is quicker. And I, I, don't, I think this is intuitive, so I don't have to spend much time here. But this is the perspective of heaven. Jesus still speaking in an uninterrupted dialogue gets down to this point. What man... Having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes into the home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven. The perspective of heaven Not the host but of heaven Joy shall be in heaven Over one sinner that repents More than over ninety and nine Just persons that need no repentance Wow Luke wants you to know Okay And he does this in a row First You want to understand how God thinks he wants the house to be full. Now, let me show you how heaven thinks. Heaven feels like even when 99 people come together for church, 99 people act right, 99 people talk right, 99 people dress right, 99 people didn't do drugs that week, 99 people didn't drink that week, 99 people didn't even swear that week, 99 just persons, they give, they pray, they live right, act right, when God can reach just one sinner with the gospel heaven gets more excited over the redemption of one than over 99 that are sitting there I'm telling you there is a perspective of heaven it, it, it personifies it such it says you would even you would even leave the one to reach the other Man, that's a horrible thought, wouldn't it? Imagine if we would be in here, and, and, and God's omnipotent, so luckily it's not mutually exclusive like this, but imagine the, the picture. You're feeling him move on you, and we're worshiping, and all that familiar power and presence and glory descends in the room. You got goosebumps from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, your hands lifted, and Tears running down your face and all of a sudden in a moment it lifts out of this room and every single one of us feel to be instantly alone 
And somewhere and some bar in this city, some drunk staggers out, falls onto the street, and that's where the glory begins to descend. And all of a sudden, God begins to deal with him about all of his sin and all of his issues, and remorse begins to hit that man on the street, and he realizes what he's sacrificed and what he's lost, and he begins to count the cost of his iniquity, and right there, under some light down at 9 o'clock in the evening in the street he begins to repent on that sidewalk in the same glory that we were feeling in this room that has departed from us goes rushing down to that man he's trying to draw you a picture where if I had to leave 99 that were right to reach one I would even do it he wants you to comprehend how serious heaven is about reaching one more soul. It tries to restate it in case that sheep thing didn't speak to you. I don't know if he's trying to give a male and a female version of the story, but he, he rephrases it here. Goes on in verse 8. He says, if there was a woman and she, was, she had ten pieces of silver, she lost one. Would she not light a candle and sweep the house? And seek diligently till she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her friends, her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. The perspective of the host is that souls need to be reached. The perspective of heaven is that souls need to be reached. There is an area that the host and the heavens agree now what would hell say of it and again this is a very bizarre literary strategy that you don't really see from other authors and certainly not this quick but in Luke 16 Luke wants to show you a glimpse of hell in Luke 16 and 19 it gives us a I'm gonna I'm gonna call it at this if this offends your theology that's it's all right. It's just perspective. I don't know that I could make a case on it. But I'm going to call this one a story. Somebody say story. If you want to call it a parable, that's fine. But I don't see anything at the beginning or the end that calls it a parable. This reads like a literal story. And so I'm going to call it a story. But again, you don't have to take that to the bank. To each his own. It's all good. There's a lesson here nonetheless. But in Luke 16 and 9, Jesus tells us this story. And it says... There's a rich man. Man, this rich guy, he's clothed in purple, fine linen, and he's sumptuous every day. Now, there's a beggar as well, and his name's Lazarus. And he is laid at his gate full of sores. I don't know how drug and crime-ridden this city is, but it certainly saw a lot of this in Seattle. To give you an understanding of the depth of his poverty, it lets you look into his emotion. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. But all he had were dogs that would come by and lick the sores. Now it came to pass that when that beggar died, he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom and the rich man died and was buried and in hell 
He lifted up his eyes, being in torment. Now from hell, the rich man could somehow see. I've never been there, but this is how it works. From hell, he could see spiritually into heaven. Though he could not go. It says he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus, that was that beggar, in his bosom. He's being embraced as he enters heaven. And he cries and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your life you received good things. This man evil things. But now he's comforted and you're tormented. Beside all of this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from there. He says you can't go from hell to heaven and you can't go from heaven to hell. Then he said... I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify unto them. Lest they also come into this place of torment. My friends, this is the part of the story that I think many have overlooked. We know that God wants to save every single sinner. We know that heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. But have you ever thought about the messages that hell would preach about reaching the lost? The only story and insight that we're ever given about the dialogues that take place within the borders of hell allude to just this. In hell there is not going to be great boasting about how much that you drank. There's not going to be bragging about how many drugs that you did, about how many people you slept with and about how perverted your lifestyle in hell there is no chest bumps and high fives nobody will say I am glad to be here and glad to see you here but what will they say will no one go and preach to my house for I have five brothers lest they not come here also I think if you could go to hell you would be amazed if you could have five minutes there two minutes there one minute there you would be met with people screaming crying uh, clawing at you begging you go and preach the gospel I never knew they wouldn't for one moment try and entice you to stay they wouldn't try and get you to succumb but just if this story carries any uh, accuracy just what I'm reading is that they would tell us go 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 souls are important evangelism matters everything you do to keep somebody from this place would be justified There is one place, one subject, one philosophy, one spirit where the host, where heaven, and where hell agree. And that is that souls matter. 
souls matter. Luke will conclude in just eight chapters later, in, verse, in chapter 24. Christ had that long-running dialogue to his disciples. And he tried to tell them, which Luke recorded in the scripture, he tried to tell them three different ways. That you are the variable hanging in the balance. You are the deciding factor for this world's salvation. He wanted you to feel pressure, not just pressure from him, or he would have stopped with the story of the host. But he wanted you to know that everything within God is hoping that you'll lift up your finger, open your mouth, get off your seat and into the street and reach somebody else. But so also is every angel in heaven every angel is hoping that more than 99 sitting there to clap along with sing along with shout along with another song that we would go find that one and then to bring it home he's saying listen if you even could hear from those on the other side even they would beg of you do something tell someone go somewhere preach the gospel so in Luke 24 but a few chapters later Luke will conclude the writings thus verse 46 and we can read down to 49 thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and rise to dead, rise from the dead on the third day. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It literally says, as Luke's writing, he's recording the words of Christ. This is a summary of the entire reason Jesus came. Thus it is written, and it behooved Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. That repentance and remission would be preached. The whole reason that he came was not just for me and for you, but that the message would be preached. Luke says, I want you to catch this. All of heaven wants you to reach the lost. The host wants you to reach the lost. Hell wants you to reach the lost. The whole reason Jesus came and died was that we would reach all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You can't separate preaching this message from the message itself. They are one in the same. Jesus came and died to save you and save them. He came to reach you and reach them. If we're to be Christian, we're to be we're to re, we're to make sure we're saved, but also they're saved. That is the heartbeat and the essence of Christ. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, imagine this. Imagine you're sitting there, and I'm going to be wrapped up and closed here shortly. But imagine you're sitting there, and you hear this progression from Christ firsthand. In just two, three chapters, he's preaching, and he tells you from, and he tells you that the host is trying to reach the lost. 
fact, I even kind of skipped over. He, the, right after that, there's a story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son is yet another story, a uh, parable, where he's trying to impress the urgency and seriousness with which the father wants to reach his children. The degree of sin he's willing to overlook that the child might be saved. So he's trying to show you the perspective of the host. Then he shows you the perspective of heaven that all of the angels, not one, not four, not ten, whatever, not a hundred, all of heaven rejoices over one that repents across the hosts of eternity. And then he impresses on you hell. That even if you were to go to hell like this rich man did, you would hear that rich man all of a sudden stripped of all of his pride, all of his self-control, all of his patience and regalia, all of his notoriety and nobility just gone. And you would see a man with desperate eyes and hunger in his soul begging for a preacher to go to his home. And then Jesus concludes before the ascension saying, this is the whole reason I came, that you would preach repentance in every single nation, starting right where you are right now in Jerusalem. Go get the Holy Ghost and take it around the world with you. Well, if you were there and you witnessed Jesus' progression, presenting every single perspective on eternity, and then charging you to go out, I really believe it would change how you view Christianity. I think that it would begin to form you into not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. Not just somebody that wants to see a harvest, but somebody that will plant into harvest. Not just somebody that's here to spectate, but participate. I think it would transform you. What kind of transformation am I talking about? I'm talking about the kind of transformation that when 3,000 people people come together and they're overhearing a worship service you can't just sit there and let the mockers mock but you get up out of your chair and say listen everybody this is not what you think it is but the spirit of God is here and if you repent and you get baptized God will fill you with the Holy Ghost the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off come on Peter had heard these messages and there was something in him that couldn't sit still and be quiet this gospel's got to be preached Preach to the mocker. Preach to the apathetic. Preach to the addict. Preach to the drunkard. Preach to the widow. Preach to the senator. Preach to the governor. Come on. Preach to the policeman. Preach to the teacher. Preach to the fireman. Preach to the homeless. Preach. It changed them. Changed the men that would even come in. I mean, it would change them all. I was preaching about last Sunday. I was preaching about... Uh, Philip with the eunuch in Acts 8. That's a crazy story. God all of a sudden tells this preacher, I want you to go to the desert between city one and city two. So I would be like, well, Jesus, there's a whole lot of area between the two. Do you have like a latitude, longitude to type into the GPS? He just said, go to the desert in between these two. And he's okay. So he goes out to the desert. And then when he gets there, he sees a chariot going down the road. And again, he is in the desert. It is hot. Literally, it is, it is sweat degrees Fahrenheit outside. And God tells him to run 
and join himself to the chariot. This is what I'm saying. These are not men that come in in Versace suits. This is not just about eloquent sermons underneath the beautiful stage lighting. This is not ministry with air conditioning. Friend, the essence of these men was impressed on them earlier. We are going to reach the lost at all costs. Now we're running in the desert to catch up with a chariot. We might be teaching a Bible study to people that don't look like us we might be in a jail next week at midnight preaching to a jailer this is what we do it's incredible and sure enough he goes running through the desert catches up to a chariot starts having a bible study through the window we know he's not inside because it tells us the thoughts of the eunuch was he wishes that he would come inside so the dude's literally running Huffing and puffing, sweating in the desert to keep up with the chariot. And we're talking about the book of Isaiah some. And then he hops in. Man, I'm telling you right now. Hey, there's a lot of crazy things I've had to do to reach somebody. Haven't had to do that yet. But why not? Why not run up to somebody's Uber, yell in the window, and just see what Jesus can do? (laughs) Why not tell somebody at work? Why not tell somebody at school? Why not tell somebody at a grocery store? Why not tell somebody at a gas station? I tell you what, there's a lot of discussions we'll have. But none are as worthy, as important, and as valuable as reaching the lost. Man, and even when Paul came in. Paul, Paul, Paul's interesting, very important figure in scripture. But he didn't get that initial, he didn't get the initial message from the lips of Jesus. But I always thought about why did Paul get so radicalized? How did Paul end up such a good soul winner if Jesus wasn't programming him? And that's why it's relevant. Perhaps the most relevant figure to us is we weren't firsthand there with Jesus. Paul wasn't firsthand there with Jesus. Yet he went on more missionary trips, more this, more that than anybody else. So, man, what made Paul? Because whatever made Paul needs to get in me. You know what I go back to in my mind is that somebody reached Paul. You know, I was reading this story in Ananias one day. God tells him, go knock on this this door in a city, gives him the city, gives him the street, gives him the person to ask for. But he's just supposed to go knock on a door and pray with somebody. And then Saul's like, wait, 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 God, I know that name. You ain't talking about Paul, are you? Like, Saul, he's a bad dude. You want me to go reach him? And, And God has to kind of give him some consolation or at least a repeated instruction. You're gonna go. So he makes down the road, heads down, and he gets to straight, the street called straight, knocks on the door, literally. I mean, this is, this is what we do today. That's what Pastor just said. We went out and went to 50, 50-something doors. Five of them people were ready. God was working on them. That's what we do. Paul would have never been a figure in the New Testament if there wasn't an Ananias that went and knocked on the door. And when the door went came open, he said the first two words out of his mouth, Brother Saul. And then he prayed for him. God healed him. God filled him with the Holy Ghost. And he baptized him. So Paul might not have had Jesus to look at. But he had Ananias. And if I'm to be a Christian like he is. 
Maybe I should do like he does. I would venture to say a good number of us sitting in this room would not be here today if God didn't send us some Ananias that have pulled us forward along the way. What am I saying? Somebody invited me or I wouldn't be here today. For me, it was a young lady in my high school invited me for years and years and years. And it wasn't until I was in college I finally decided I'm going to give that church a chance. And that ended up being my wife. And I married her later. But my wife won me to the Lord. If she wouldn't have invited me, friend, there would have been. I'm not trying to be braggadocious, but we've seen thousands receive the Holy Ghost every single year of ministry and we're just the smallest little piece of the puzzle imagine how many are out there today how many souls are being reached today because of the Ananiases that went first and knocked on somebody's door gave someone a ride to church taught a Bible study took somebody to coffee you could win the next Paul We have got to be invested in reaching the lost. I want to see more Pauls in this church. I want to see more key people. Right? You know, a pastor just called me recently and he said, Man, do you remember that revival service you came out for? I said, Yeah, man. It was crazy. It was fun. We I remember we went to a flea market and it was super muddy. And and he's like, Yeah, and we baptized all those people. I'm like, no, no, I know, but I'm more used to that than the amount of mud that I left the flea market with. Uh, But he said, Man, one of those that we baptized, one, just one. He said, that lady, crazy, man. He said, after we baptized that one lady, she has brought 15 more people from her family that have all been baptized in Jesus' name. He said, I just got a text message. We're baptizing another four this Sunday from her. And I said, man, that's Jesus. When the Ananiases go out, then the Pauls emerge. Amen. If you stand together with me tonight. So again, I I was endeavoring here to teach. And what I'm trying to show you, again, is this literary technique that Luke is using. He intentionally tells you the same story three different ways. And and, and I mean, I'm not assigning all the originality here to Luke. He's, He's really just recording the stories Jesus taught. But there were... The world could be filled with the books of what Jesus did and said. So Paul, or Luke selectively chose these because there's something he's trying to communicate to the New Testament writer. And that is, no matter who you look at, everything in eternity is screaming at us to do something about the lost around us. He reinforces it all of these different directions that you would understand The incredible burden, the incredible need, the incredible yearning that heaven, that hell, that the host has to reach those around us. Some of us feel the depth of that sting with the people closest to us. And here's what I mean. If you're in this place and you have a lost spouse, I know your heart. I know your heart. You would give anything and everything to see them reach. Some of you have lost parents and you would give everything. Anything that they would care, even one iota for what you would give your life for. You don't understand why they don't, but you would trade it all that they might have a moment of hunger and experience the cross. Those of you with children that aren't in the kingdom, you know the pain. You would give.
give the world to see them say, God, Luke, all these authors are saying the same. All of eternity has a yearning to reach them. Every man, every woman, every child. Till the house is filled. The house is filled. It almost makes me wonder. This is now this is speculative and way outside of the Bible, but I'm just gonna say it. I wonder, speculative, even if there might be a small little party in hell when we baptize the family member of somebody who was lost. Speculative, but I wonder. And the most despicable of people that landed there in this life may even be shouting over the presentation of the gospel that we're doing in ours. Man. Because if you could zoom in on that rich man. If the next week somebody went to his house. And preached to those brothers. That story reads like he'd have been having a shout. <laughs> My goodness. I think of all of that inertia behind me. And I can't help but believe when I go out. God is going to go with me. You know, the most common question I get is, what do I do if I'm nervous to talk to somebody about the gospel? I understand being nervous. Like, really, look at me. And I say this a lot, but I mean it. Every man, woman, and child in here can beat me up. I mean, I am small, and I wasn't raised in church. I'm not some pastor's kid. I feel all those bizarre dynamics, especially as you go up to that first door. You're at a grocery store. You want to talk to that first person of the day. And there's that, that little bit of that anxiety. But you know, my thought is I just can't avoid the discussion. Because if I don't have it now and make them uncomfortable today. I fear that I would have to answer to them later for not having the discussion. I fear that I would answer to hell their lost family members for not having the discussion. I fear answering to the angels for not having the discussion. And I fear answering to God for not having the discussion. So no matter how that goes down and shakes out, somebody saying no to me on the street is better than the audience I'll have later asking me why couldn't I have tried to tell them this message that so changed and saved me that they might be so changed and saved as well friend you can do this you can do this we might not know everything. That's okay. We don't need to. We know the cross. We know our king. We have a testimony. And God will give them one as well. If you know Acts 2.38, you know enough to tell somebody else Acts 2.38. And I'm telling you, even though you can't see it, there are more for you than against you. You ought to get into your mind that when you go stand at a door, there are angels around you. And there is all of eternity upon applauding you and supporting you you ought to picture your pastor standing behind you and every pastor standing behind him we cheer you on we need you preach the word and the beauty of the thing is it never returns void you will reach somebody say amen amen so amen as we look around here tonight we're going to close in prayer i'm going to hand off to to pastor here in a second and
Are you leading in prayer or I'm leading in prayer? Okay. Uh, and we may pray twice, but just in case I don't cover it all. <laughs> but as I look around this room, I mean it. I mean it. I'm, I'm really not, um, I really am not a numbers guy. In fact, sometimes it gets me in trouble because I have no clue what's happening in a service. Like one time I, was, I felt myself getting really frustrated and I was trying to hide it. And my wife, she, she, she knows. So she, after, she's like, why were you so mad? And I'm like, did I say something wrong? And she's like, no, but I know you. And I'm like, well, babe, I just didn't feel like it was happening. And she's like, how many people do you think we baptized? I'm like, I don't know, like three? She's like, we baptized 14 people behind you while you were mad. I was like, oh, I probably should have turned around. <laughs> Sometimes with the... You know, I'm trying to get people to pray. I think nobody's praying. And, like, the whole church got the Holy Ghost. And I'm still like, come on, guys, we need to pray. You know, so I'm, but it's because I'm not in the habit of counting, you know, what's happening. And, and I'm not trying to slow down. I don't know what normal attendance is on Sunday. So I'm not after a number. Like, if your number's a 200, I'm not just after 300. If your number's 300, I'm not just after four. The number's irrelevant because I will always be unhappy with the number. <laughs> As long as there's even one out there lost. You know, we preached at churches with thousands in the congregation. And I swear, I come through that door and I feel just as Holy Ghost uncomfortable and dissatisfied as I would as if there's ten in the room. Because we might have a thousand in here, but there's a million out there. I'm praying this tonight, that God will just fill this house, that He will fill this house, that every single chair will be filled with somebody that needs the gospel. In this building, I know there's Sunday schools. I want them filled to capacity, that where they can't take one more in the Sunday school, in the youth group, in the nursery. I want every sub service, our Spanish service, every other service filled. God, would you fill the house? Amen. And before we close tonight, I pray, I pray that he would use me even. I know I don't get to be here forever, but I pray he would use me to be a little part of the equation in filling the house and reaching the city of Omaha. I want to stand in the gap and preach the gospel. I believe with every fiber of my being, if we will plant and we will water, God will bring an increase. Come on, somebody. The word does not return void. We will reap if we faint not. Amen. Could you just pray that way right now? Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this house is filled. Filled, God. I pray that you would use us to reach people we never thought could be reached. I pray that you would use me every day of the week and in everything that I do. God, every place I go, whether it be work, whether it be school, whether it be to eat. God, use me to reach somebody else with the gospel. I pray every single Sunday, let somebody be baptized in the name.
name of Jesus and filled with the Holy Ghost. God, help us to reach key people. Help us to reach influencers. Help us to reach young people. Help us to reach the elect. God, I pray that you'd make us effective and anointed. Let people get the Holy Ghost in home Bible studies. Let them get the Holy Ghost in our cars. Let them get the Holy Ghost at a Starbucks. Oh, in the name of Jesus, God, fill your house. If there's anything that's preventing me from reaching the loss, any fear, any pride, any hesitation, God, take it out of my heart. I want to do your will. Lord, this mouth is yours to speak whatever you would have. These hands are yours to touch whatever you would have. These feet will go wherever you would have them. In the name of Jesus, use me. Somebody pray that way. Use me. Use my time. Use my energy. Use my finances. Use my car. Use my home. Use my family. Use my children. God, we want to reach the lost. Oh, in the name of Jesus. Right now, God, you see the names and the faces and the families that burn into my mind and heart. Those that I know, that I love, that I deeply care for. I believe even they can be reached with the gospel of Christ. Lord, I can feel all of the inertia from you, from the heavenly host, and even from hell, begging for a preacher to be sent amongst the world today. God, I will go. I will be the labor that you've called. I will be a fisher of men. But I pray that somewhere along the line you'd give me or someone in this room opportunity to reach those key families that I love. God, save my children. Save my siblings. Save my spouse. Save my family. Save my city. Save my co-workers. Save my friends. Save my classmates. Come on, save them, God. Oh, Use us. Use us in the name of Jesus. Come on, somebody say amen.